0: I think evidence-based medicine has kept many of us in the dark and enabled industry like telecommunications and chemical manufacturers to produce products that they're not required to Mm. to prove they're safe. And the reality is, we're exposed to multiple frequencies, multiple chemicals, multiple biotoxins in water damage environments that are causing your health. And how do we see that? We see that in epidemiological studies. So unfortunately, the way in which it works is we wait till the breast cancer clusters happen, the brain tumors happen, and then we look back retrospectively going, well, oh, what the hell has happened?
1: Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast, where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative, cutting-edge information from leading experts from around the world. Welcome to Metagenics Clinical. I'm Nathan Rose, and today with me is author, naturopath, PhD candidate, and founder of the College of Environmental Studies, Nicole Bilsmail. Welcome, Nicole.
0: Hi, Nathan. How are you?
1: I'm very good, thanks. I just want to read this quote from a, a, your book here that I think really captures um, your essence. So this is from Dr. Penny Caldicott. Nicole Nicole's a passionate woman on a crucial mission to enlighten a sleeping population on the devastating consequences of modern life. Would you say that's that's your mission?
0: Yes. I think she said it really well. I hadn't thought about it that way, but I, I would definitely agree with that.
1: Okay, so yes, we want to dive into some of the environmental toxicants that our patients are faced with. And I saw you present at the uh, Australian College of Nat- National, sorry, the Australian College of Nutritional Environmental Medicine recently. And what struck me was uh, many of the presenters, including myself, we spoke about the the N in acronym, the nutrition, but very few, other than yourself, really spoke about the E, the environmental medicine. And what I wanted to do today is really explore that, and particularly uh, EMFs. Um, is that what you feel as well, like in this sort of functional medicine movement that um, perhaps nutrition and microbiome and stress, et cetera, get good airplay, but do you think we're getting enough um, exposure, I mean, you know, in terms of the information on the environmental side? Definitely
0: not. I mean, <laughs> I trained 30 years ago in naturopathy and acupuncture, and about five to 10 years into practice, I realised that a huge chunk of information had been missing from my eight-year degree, double degree, and that was the environment that genetics loads the gun, but the environment, our lifestyle, our diet, of course, is important, but especially our homes is a significant, if not major player in everyone's Uh, chronic illnesses and as part of my PhD I looked at what toxicants or man-made chemicals are affiliated with which chronic illnesses and every chronic illness is affiliated or correlated to some degree to chemicals in the home whether it's building materials, furnishings, flame retardants, pesticides. Pesticides comes up with almost so many conditions because it's antibacterial and of course Because we know the microbiome are playing an important role, a much more important role in detoxification than we realise. In fact, it's probably over the 850 bacteria that they've identified that actually have xenobiotic capability so they can detox chemicals even more effectively than the liver. And uh, a lot of this happens in the gut, in phase two detoxification pathways that are involving the gut microbiome. So we've started to, the National Academies of Sciences recently, like in the last four weeks, released a paper about uh, environmental chemicals, human health and the microbiome and realised that we there's so little information we know about this and that most of the way in which we've tested chemicals in products has been completely useless because giving it to rodents that have a very different microbiome to humans, that uh, it has been really uh, not very useful to, when we you know test mm-hmm. chemicals and create safety data sheets.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm really fascinated to see what comes out of the microbiome, sort of called now the the new liver, and yes, we'll hear more and more about that. So yeah, you just mentioned a a plethora of things there, biotoxins and pesticides. What I wanted to focus in today on is, um, there's probably no uh, uncontroversial area when it comes to your field, but uh, one that's really murky is um, electromagnetic uh, fields, or EMFs. And this is a real item for me when I read your chapter. So I wanted to dive in there and, and get a bit of the lay of the land and see what we can do about it. See, is it real? Is it, um, some suggest, is it physiological? Is it psychological? And how do we go about assessing and treating it? So, um, broadly, first of all, EMFs, can you explain uh, the different types of electrochemical smog, for one of a better term?
0: Sure. Um, This is probably the most complicated field that we deal with as building biologists um, because it's very difficult to show cause and effect when the frequencies are constantly changing and it's ubiquitous. I mean, how do we get a control when the entire planet's been bathed by uh, radio frequencies? So I think it's important to start with the fact that life on Earth has evolved with the natural electromagnetic background or terrestrial radiation of the planet namely arising from the sun, the Earth's static magnetic field or the geomagnetic field, radioactivity within the Earth's crust and, of course, cosmic radiation from the galaxy, gravity and, of course, the electric field from the ionosphere or the Schumann resonance. So in terms of electromagnetic fields, not all fields are bad. In fact, we've evolved with this. Animals, birds are used... To navigate, for example, um, bees in terms of and termites where they nest, uh, are very important how they connect to the geomagnetic field. The problem is, as humans, is our homes have been built in such a way that has disconnected us from the terrestrial radiation, and that's certainly um, a concern. The impact of which we're not really clear about what impact that that has, especially with the more metal we bring into our homes. Right. Now. In our homes, we have several fields that we're exposed to um, as a result of the electricity, AC electric and AC magnetic fields. There's very little data to show electric fields are a problem, which is a good thing. Otherwise, we wouldn't have electricity. As in like from
1: 240 volts? 240 volts. Yep, exactly. We use
0: 240 volts here in Australia. That's the the voltage used in our electrical wiring and all of our appliances, and the voltage creates an electric field. It's very rare for people to react to that unless they are sensitive and the good news about electric fields is that if people are sensitive to them which is about three to five percent of the population then you know they just need to move 1.2 meters away from the electrical wiring in the wall or the appliance or switch the appliance off in order to reduce exposure the two fields that have the most amount of data in the scientific research is ac magnetic fields and radio frequencies used in wireless technology Technologies. Now, magnetic fields are created from any appliance that's plugged into your power points that generates a lot of current. And they include those things with motors like your fridge that goes on and off all night, which is why you never put a bedhead against a wall where the fridge is on the other side. Ovens generate a huge amount of current, but that's generally only a problem when the oven is heating. So children with cots on the other side of the wall of the oven, that's a huge problem because the magnetic field going on and off during while it's in use. Um, Meter panels, smart meters emit um, quite high levels of AC magnetic fields. um, And certainly it's very, very important never put a bed head on the other side of the wall or on the same wall as a smart meter, we find very frequently that patients in almost inevitably will have some degree of insomnia. And depending on how long they've slept there and their genotype, they gradually end up with electrosensitivity symptoms, which are often misdiagnosed as autoimmune diseases by right. natural therapists.
1: Fascinating. Uh, so in many houses these days uh, have the smart meter or the, the meter box adjacent to a, a bedroom?
0: Yes, there's no requirement under the building right. code to put it anywhere, but most of the time, a lot of the time, it ends up on someone's bedroom wall, unfortunately.
1: Okay, so if we do become aware of that, it's so a relatively simple measure in just creating some distance there. So now, onto the probably the, the, the most tricky areas these radio frequencies that is ubiquitous in the environment, as you said, with um, the use of wireless technology. So, can you give us a bit of a, a lay of the land now of where wireless is at and some of the, the ramifications perhaps of using wireless technology?
0: Sure. Well, the first concerns that radio frequencies were a problem was actually in the military during World War II when military workers on radar bases were demonstrating unusual side effects, which we now associate with electromagnetic. Sensitivities. So I can go into those symptoms shortly. Um, however, since that time and the use of wireless technology, we're starting to see very strong correlations with things like headaches, fatigue, fibromyalgic type of symptoms, um, and even illnesses like brain tumours keep coming up in the literature quite a lot, um, especially acoustic neuromas and um, gliomas. Three of the most influential studies in this field were the Interphone study um, in Europe, the Serenet French study and Professor Leonard Hardell's research, which have shown a significant increased risk for brain tumours if people use their mobile phone next to their head for at least 30 minutes a day on one side of the head for a minimum of 10 years. Um, and that's not surprising in light of the fact that these brain tumours have long latency periods. The fact that DOBE in 2011, an Australian researcher, showed a over a 30% increase in brain tumour um, increase in New South Wales residents in this study, um, well before the latency period has come up. That's what concerns us as building biologists is that we're already showing before this latency period of 15 to 25 years, which is pretty average for many of the brain tumors, is already showing an increased risk for um, Mm. the development of this condition.
1: Wow, that's uh, frightening. So (laughs) you've laid out some really clear science there. But in your book, you also discuss a lot of the the controversies in this area um, about you know, corporations and a long latency period. So there is a, maybe um, cynics or sceptics about whether EMFs um, do cause harm. So what are some of the, the landmarks in this area, like the, the, the pros and cons on uh, EMFs?
0: Well, it's really hard to show cause and effect. I mean, science wants us, and during my PhD, you, you see the inadequacies of the scientific method. And the, the fact that we push as natural therapists evidence-based medicine, I think evidence-based medicine has kept many of us in the dark and enabled industry like telecommunications and chemical manufacturers to produce products that they're not required to prove, mm. to prove they're safe. And the reality is we're exposed to multiple frequencies, multiple chemicals, multiple biotoxins in water-damaged environments that are causing ill health. And how do we see that? We see that in epidemiological studies. So unfortunately, the way in which it works is we wait till the breast cancer clusters happen, the brain tumors happen, and then we look back retrospectively going on what the hell has happened and what's causing it. And then we put all the research in drug companies to fix or address symptoms and never get to the cause. Um and I'm really skeptical when I say that but I've been in this industry too long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And I see how dysfunctional it is. And it's not about public health. The exposure stands for electromagnetic fields and chemicals are not health-based standards. They're not for people who are vulnerable. They, The duty of care isn't on required on manufacturers to prove their telecommunications um, radio frequencies are safe. So they launch them without any research to prove conclusively they're safe. And then researchers like me spend a lifetime trying to see if there are adverse health effects and the onus is on us to prove Harm, which is just the craziest system, and that's why we got in trouble with asbestos and PVC and benzene and lead, and and continue to be in, in huge problems. But the canaries for me and the big red flags are definitely electromagnetic fields, especially because of their capacity to enhance the permeability of the blood brain barrier to chemicals. We know each generation has more and more chemicals. Large population biomonitoring studies, especially National Health and Nutritional Examination Survey in the US, is showing hundreds of chemicals in cord blood and in pregnant in the average pregnant woman. And what do EMFs do is they enhance the permeability of the brain and the central nervous system to these chemicals. And that's why the symptoms of electromagnetic sensitivity and chemical sensitivity and mold related illness are almost identical. Mm. And I suspect it's because of this synergistic effect.
1: Yeah, okay. So perhaps even at a simplistic level, they're only looking for a uh, one signal, pardon the pun, when it could be yeah, a whole symphony of all these um, pathogens, um, for want of a better term, that's, that's driving the illness. All right, and one of the other areas that really um, was confusing, and I've, I can't recall seeing any other sort of area about the, the discrepancy or the, the range in standards of what's acceptable in different nations and different bodies. Um, there's sometimes like a hundred or a thousand or million-fold difference between what... One organisation is saying safe and another is. um, Is that an issue and has that been hard to sort of reconcile?
0: Yes, so the exposure stands are developed in consultation with the telecommunications industry to determine what's practicable in a workplace. They are not health-based standards. Uh, in addition, the standards for radio frequencies used in wireless are based on heating effects. How much does it heat your body before it causes an adverse health effect? And we now know this to be completely null and void that adverse health effects can, can occur that are non-thermal that result in significant changes in cellular function, increasing oxidative stress, DNA strand breaks, etc. One of the problems was why it's largely been ignored is because it was based on the assumption that radio frequencies can't cause cancer because they can't dislodge electrons from their orbits. And whilst that's true, the premise is completely invalid because of the amazing amount of studies that have demonstrated that they can indirectly induce cancer by generating free radicals that damage DNA, double and and, um, single strand DNA breaks and interfere with antioxidant mechanisms. They also increase the influx of calcium ions by acting on voltage-gated calcium channels at the cellular membrane, and that results in the influx of calcium ions that results in downstream effect and ultimately production of peroxynitri-free radicals and oxidative stress. And we all know as practitioners, oxidative stress, if that supersedes the antioxidants that are created, then of course we have ageing and we have chronic illness and and low-grade inflammation.
1: Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So, yeah, that's the the cellular effects, and unfortunately, with physiology, sometimes it's very generic, like the oxidative stress and inflammation. What happens at a more of a phenotypic level, or the patient? How would the you've touched upon some of those symptoms already? How would how does that sort of translate into the manifestation of an unwell patient walking into your clinic? What do they look like?
0: Sure. All right. So, an exposure history is the most important. Um, in terms of symptoms. Patients who don't get better by improving their diet, by improving their stress and addressing that and having a relatively good lifestyle, then you need to start thinking the home as an issue. And the first questions that, that flag that for me is, how long have you had your symptoms and how long have you lived in this home? Has there been a history of water damage? Where is the router in your home? What type of um, electrical equipment or appliances do you have in your bedroom? Um, do you improve when you're away from the house? That can often indicate that there may be something in the home that's contributing or causing the symptoms. But the major, minor, the primary symptoms would be fatigue and headache. Um, they're quite an unusual headache, and especially headache in children that can't be explained with hypoglycemia or diet. I often, this is the first thing I'm thinking of, mm. is electromagnetic fields. So, where, you know, the kids who have headaches while they're at school, and have digestive related problems and tummy aches can also indicate that children can manifest their headaches as a tummy pain or abdominal bloating or abdominal discomfort, and yet they don't have it when they're at home if the home doesn't have wireless technology. And that's in, uh, questions I ask the parent: Are you either often sick at, at school but not at home? And then we realise while well, the router's on in their classroom, but you know the router is significant distance away from their bedroom, etc. Um, so headache, sleep disturbances are classic because mm. we know radio radiofrequency suppress melatonin, which is the most important antioxidant hormone that makes turmeric and everything else look like it's not doing anything. I mean, we have built-in antioxidant mechanisms and antioxidant enzymes that have remarkable abilities to deal with this stress, but we've never lived in an environment like this before. Other symptoms are flu-like symptoms that keep coming back and don't go away um, and changes in heart, things like blood pressure changes, postural hypertension, feeling dizzy when standing up, even postural tachycardia syndrome where the heart rate increases when they stand up is really common with mould and electromagnetic sensitivities. Um, nosebleeds that are not explained, um, the feeling of um, the heart beating in the chest. The other symptom in the brain would be brain fog. And many of my adult clients with electromagnetic sensitivity become dyslexic. So they weren't born this way, but they can't, They wow. actually find it difficult to read. And that's a really important symptom not to forget. So they have poor short-term memory, difficulty in concentrating, anomia where they miss words mid-sentence. And sometimes there's a bit of confusion and learning difficulties that were never there when they were growing up. Um, other ones, tinnitus, you know, I've had some interesting case studies of couples, one particular couple, where both of them developed within six months apart, man year syndrome, and from their bedroom you could see four mobile phone towers within 400 metres of their second-storey bedroom, and the levels were thousands of microwatt per square metre. They were significantly better when they were at their seaside resort holiday home, and that's what triggered them to to ask us in uh, asked me in to assess their home. And, yeah, it was interesting. It started within six months. The woman was 12 months and the woman developed many years and six months after that her husband did. I mean, what's the chances of that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So the, the temporal relationship with the home to me suggests that perhaps th- th- like t- it's hard to differentiate between these uh, mold illness and that sounded a lot like a uh, muscle activation syndrome as well um, yes. so is there a, a, a quite a good alleviation as soon as they get out of the in- that uh, electromagnetic environment so out in the country or the seaside you'll see a, a rapid change whereas perhaps like a mold if it's that biotoxin continually recirculating they may not get that alleviation is that a, a bit of a tip-off
0: Yes, it is. But if it goes on for long enough, the symptoms can become more permanent and the damage is done.
1: Okay. So
0: that's why the exposure history is really important. And I just published a study last week on how expert clinicians in the field of environmental medicine assess chemicals. And in the end, they realised there were virtually no lab tests that, that were reliable because, how, you know, there's 140 million chemicals registered for you. So how do you even test for them, let alone know what the microbiome is doing to them before they get into the blood? But they said, they all agreed, and it was very little that they agreed on, Mm -hmm. was that the exposure history is actually the most important clinical tool to use in practice, and it takes... An, an average of 90 minutes in the first consultation to do that and that's what's part of my phd now is creating this exposure history tool that practitioners and their patients can use to assess toxic load, load exposures to electromagnetic fields and biotoxins toxins like mold and we'll launch that in july
1: oh july fantastic yeah that sounds invaluable i can't wait for that because that's something that's really troubled me over the past few years is that we know about um environmental chemicals and the ubiquitous nature and they're linked to everything but yeah trying to objectively assess is really tough so yeah i really (laughs) i really look forward to this um so back to the all those symptoms this would come under the banner of electromagnetic hypersensitivity is that is do you use that term and is that something that's being recognized now
0: Yeah, it's not recognised by the World Health Organisation, but there's pressure for them to recognise it. Certainly the Austrian Medical Association published in 2012 their guideline for doctors as a duty of care, this paper on how to diagnose, test and treat patients with electromagnetic sensitivities.
1: I did find it fascinating that it seems they're a bit more liberal with this. With um, in Europe, not only their their tested standings seem to be lower in terms of what what dose uh, is safe, but also that actually open even in conventional medicine circles to this uh, entity of electromagnetic hypersensitivity. Um, yes, exactly. So, is there any? You mentioned it is tough, but are there any any biomarkers we can use to um, test for this? I, I know there was a, a study you cited, Bell um Was more sort of research-based and found some clear biomarkers in these patients. But is anything in practice we can do to to get a screening on EHS?
0: Look, they haven't determined exactly what that should be. And if you read the Austrian Medical Association's guidelines, there's so many things they recommend. The main one is melatonin is a really important one. Others are starting to find just the oxidative genes can be quite useful but of course there's many things that can cause that so because it had such difficulties in isolating a marker to say yes it's eHS um that's been a big part of the problem which is why the exposure history becomes really important and in fact i didn't actually finish all the symptoms of eHS <laughs> yeah we're almost through them but um skin itching prickling, biting sensation can, and electric sensations on the skin Muscles, body aches and pains, and often these fibromyalgic symptoms, um, people can become sensitive to light, chemical noise, and or smell. And I think that's an interesting one. They become chemically sensitive. And often sufferers can pinpoint which part of the building or the room that makes them unwell. So that's quite an unusual symptom mm. that a practitioner should ask.
1: Okay. Now, moving on to how we treat these patients then. Well, first of all, how do how do they people get on to you like... Um do you typically scream for this or uh, people uh, refer to you? I wouldn't think it's a first thought that a, a patient would seek out a, a building biologist.
0: No. Um, we're normally a last resort. Mm. Often the amount of lecturing I'm doing at conference, medical conferences, a lot of naturopaths and integrated doctors, that's where most of our work comes from now, is they will refer Um, Patients to us, and we'll go into the home to see if there's something that potentially could be um, triggering ill health, and do an investigation of electromagnetic fields and allergens and chemicals in the air, or from their paints, or if they've had their house sprayed with pesticides, all of those sort of things, and biotoxins. We do fifty percent of our work is uh, actually assessing water damaged environments and mould.
1: Okay, so yeah, you're the one stop shop for building biology. So. Typically, what's a workup for you as you go into a home? You're checking for mould. What sort of gadgets are you going around screening for EMFs and um, pesticides and so forth?
0: Yeah, about 70% of the people who do our course, it's a nationally accredited advanced diploma of building biology, two years full-time, four years part-time. Um, And we would have in our toolkit, we'd have things like moisture meters, infrared thermal cameras. We'll have boroscopes to look under fridges and dishwashers for water damage. We'll have a high frequency meter for radio frequencies, a gauss meter for AC magnetic fields. We'll have different bio pumps to measure to take for air and, and surface samples. So it's quite extensive the sort of equipment we have. Um, as I said, seventy percent of our building biologists are women, and we're not normal women because you know we don't want the jewelry for for our birthdays. We want to go to bunnings or to the nearest indoor air quality.
1: <laughs> what a woman doesn't want a, s- a spectrum analyzer for a birthday? Hey. Um, oh,
0: I would love a spectrum analyzer. <laughs> I'm not one of those. <laughs>
1: Um, I've lost my train of thought. (laughs) So um, what are some of the the common findings from the uh, EMF perspective? Is it the router? Is it the um, second story, as you said? Or do you often uncover the unusual ones about the water pipe that's um, faulty ground current, um, some sort of left field type of sources of electromagnetic radiation?
0: Yes, electromagnetic fields and biotoxins are interesting because especially with emails, you can't see it, you can't smell it, you know, unless you've got your meters, it's impossible to determine apart from knowing what the sources are in the home. Most of the time when people call us in because they're concerned about something in the house, it's not related to that or it's something different. Um, You'll find often with um, electromagnetic fields, their router and their cordless phone will be the two top RF sources that create huge amounts of radio frequencies in their home. So having a cordless phone next to your bed, knowing it suppresses melatonin is just, it's a huge problem. So that needs to be wireless baby monitors. You know, kids don't sleep. They're exposed to high level of radio mm. frequencies from their baby monitor. For God's sake, what? They're allowed to sell them. I have no idea. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that can emit high. Some of the Telstra modems are emitting the same type of radio frequency as a cell phone tower, And we're now aware that some of these modems are designed to be used like a cell phone tower so when people pass your house in the car, they Mm -hmm. can use your router or modem Ah, like a phone base station so that they can keep the signal and keep their call, which is a disaster because the levels from this are enormous. And you're thinking, oh, my God, how on earth can people be uh, exposed to this? Why isn't the government protecting it? And, of course, the government has shares in Telstra and it's just a disaster
1: Wow, it's frightening. Um, and unfortunately, does it f- seem like it may get worse before better because of the, the emerging technology with the 5G and more adoptions of the, the smart meters um, on our homes?
0: Oh, absolutely. And the problem is we're addicted to this technology. Yeah. Can you see us? With technology? We're, we're so addicted that even if people were able to show it's already... So, in t- 31st of May 2011, the World Health Organisation classified the, the radiation from cell phones and from routers and all your wireless devices in your house as possibly carcinogenic to humans. Mm. Now that they've published this new $25 million study on rodents in the US and the um, Ramazzini Institute this year also had a significant rodent study showing increased risks of brain tumours as a result of exposure to wireless, how many people are going to want to let that go? And that's the thing, and that's why I say in my book, you really need to go to hardwired options, you know, like corded landline phones. Use, if you use your cell phone like I do, I love my cell phone. I keep it always away from my person and my, my head. I never put it against my head. I always use an earpiece or loudspeaker or text never near my head. Yep. If the kids are going to use their iPads, we download the app and then we put it into flight mode straight away. You know, there's simple things we can live in a technological world and yet reduce our exposure to these harmful radiation. But I guess practitioners and the public don't understand that exposure standards are not health-based standards that we need to act and we need to get informed so that we can use technologies without exposing our families to really harmful forms of radiation.
1: Right. Well, that's relieving to know that we don't have to, uh, you know, sh- uh, hide away in the the bush, and we can use technology. It's just using it judiciously. Um, so, one of the questions I had is: um, there's like simple apps you can download to to measure EMF. Are they accurate, reliable? A good start if you're concerned about EMF.
0: Well, the thing is, if you know what the source is. So, for example, if there's a cordless phone and if yeah. there's a router it's going to be emitting very high EMF. So the levels become irrelevant because they're going to exceed the building biology standard of 10 microwatts. As soon as you have any RF wireless device in a room, it will exceed the building biology standard by thousands, thousands of fold. Okay. Um, if you look at the exposure standards, which you mentioned earlier, Austria, what's allowed is 10 microwatts per square metre for a um, uh, the exposure standard. Yep. And of course, for uh, you know, it's incredibly low. Whereas in Australia, we allow up to ten million microwatts per square meter, which is not a health-based standard. So, mm. any wireless device in the home is going to be a problem, which is why you need to switch it off at the wall.
1: Okay, so it's about obviously trying to reduce the amount of devices with radio frequency, um, switching things off, also creating a bit of a distance as well. It's uh, obviously um, the closer yes. you are, that's that's an issue as well.
0: Yeah, so the only thing we know that works in terms of exposure is to address the source and create distance, as yep, you said. Yep. The inverse square law states that as you double the distance away from the source of exposure, you reduce your exposure by 75%. So it's really important with your router that you switch them off at night or even better get a hardwired Ethernet cabled router like, for example, what I have in my office and yep. a hardwired landline phone, et
1: cetera. Okay. Um, is there anything we can do? I'm curious about um, becoming more resilient because obviously people travel and just going anywhere public now with Telstra, all those hotspots. I was at the park the other day and I could see my Wi-Fi was got you know full signal, and there was you know it was a, a, a rural park. Um, is there anything we can do to build resilience? I'm learning about how even with toxicity, um, having phytochemicals and things provide some protection even though the toxin's there. Is anything emerging or you know of that we can do to sort of combat this um, aside from avoiding it?
0: Yes, absolutely. And I think nutrition is your backbone for resilience without a shadow of a doubt. Anything that deals with oxidative stress that enhances antioxidants um, and creates this hormetic effect is going to be very important. Certainly there are shielding materials and paints that can be used, but they do not completely address the the exposure. In fact, many are expensive and often, you know, something simple as relocating your bed from the wall where the smart meter is to another room would completely fix the problem or at least creating at least two or three meter distance away. So knowledge is really what's important. But as you said, building resilience by reducing your stress, having a lifestyle that suits your genotype and maximising your genes and and creating this personalised medicine for that individual is obviously going to be helping any environmental onslaught. As we know, genetics loads the gun, the environment pulls the trigger.
1: (laughs) Wow. So um, we'll wrap it up shortly. That was just the EMFs. Your book is full of other areas, as we mentioned, biotoxins, EDCs, uh, water, um, geomagnetic stress, etc. So for practitioners that this is all new to, what's some of the steps they can take to becoming more familiar with and maybe partnering with a building biologist? How would we go about that?
0: Hmm. Okay, so yes, there are building biologists around Australia. We don't have, we, we have more work than we have um, building biologists available. Unfortunately, there's about 21 working in the industry and they're pretty much flat out. So we yeah. need more building biologists in the field because we're getting so much more aware of how the environment is triggering illnesses. Um, so the course, Australian College of Environmental Studies, provides training. But even doing something, a subject like children's environmental health, or a healthy home as a subject at the college. It's 120 hours in in length online, and it provides a really good understanding in allergens in the home, electromagnetic fields, toxicants, and how to reduce your exposure to all of those issues. Um, So we do get quite a lot of naturopaths coming in and just doing more doctors' individual subjects to upskill themselves, even mold testing. That's a 200-hour course. Um, But my book, is a really useful resource for clinicians, but especially for patients, because it provides all the all the hazards and all the solutions uh, that are in the home and the patient will often go, oh, okay, Nicole's book, now I can see this is a problem, how can you help me with that? And they'll often tell the, the practitioner, oh, I think this is a problem because I've read it in the book and this is, you know, it might be an issue, what do you think? So the book is certainly helpful and you can get that, practitioners can get it wholesale through o Health Supplies or the patient can get it through the book depository or through my own website, buildingbiology.com.au. I have lots of videos from medical conferences on my website and a lot of information in my publications.
1: Brilliant. Yeah, it's a it's an incredible book um, full of references, but also it's yeah scientific, but also got plenty of practical tips. And as hopefully the listeners have got a feeling today, you're not like a zealot that's declaring we need to... Uh, step away from everything it's how we how we live with it and how we can offset it and taking some simple steps and then getting the building biologists in for more complicated cases well i think um also hopefully listeners also agree with um dr Caldercott's early statement about your passion and your your mission i've been i'm very grateful for your time um and hopefully maybe we can catch up after your phd and we can uh explore other areas and hear about the, the tool that you developed
0: Yes, that'll be great. So healthyhomesurvey.com is the website that your clients can go to and undertake the Healthy Home Survey when it gets launched around mid to late July. And that will provide some mechanism of what hazards could exist in your home. And we'll start using some of that for research to see is there correlation, for example, with MS and and mold or neurodegenerative disorders and hazards in the home, etc. So I'm really excited to be launching that soon.
1: I bet. I can't wait. Well, thanks again, Nicole. I really appreciate your time and uh, hopefully we can catch up soon.
0: Terrific. Thanks so much, Nathan.
1: Thank you for listening to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast. Find us on iTunes and leave a review. Join our practitioner-only Metagenics Facebook group to be informed of new podcast releases, keep up to date with key industry updates and more. Visit metagenics.com.au to find useful links and resources relating to this podcast and sign up for our e-newsletter.